Greetings fellow time travellers, uh, glad to have you along for the ride as we hurtle through history together. That's what we're all about here. Uh, before we start this week's episode I have to say and I want to say thank you to all the people who show their support for everything that we do here by subscribing to the Patreon site. Everything else, the love letters, they are and always will be free but it's it's the contributions to the Patreon presence that make that, that possible. So to all who have done so, thank you uh, and if I may I'd like to invite those of you who aren't yet to consider uh, doing the same. Go to patreon.com, find my site, follow me by name, sign up, uh, part with a bit of cash, uh, uh, you can join monthly or you can get a cheaper deal for the whole year, become a member and you get access, you're part of the family at that point, there's weekly question and answers, there's vodcasts and podcasts and anyway, it'd be great to have you along, you join the conversation, the, the, the community here, the family here, all, we all talk amongst ourselves. Time now, though, to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A vast, glittering empire ruling for over a thousand years. Great wealth, power and influence. But cracks begin to show. A loyal general turns against his rulers. And, leading a mighty army, he battles his way into Rome and sacks the city. The empire is rocked, confidence is ebbing away, and the all-powerful Roman project is teetering on the abyss. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we were in the city of Milan around 400 AD, when the church and the state went head-to-head in a battle of wills that has echoed down through history, right up to the present day. Where are we this week? Hi Paul. Well, this week we're staying in the 4th century, not too much time has passed, and we're travelling in the train of a mighty Goth army on their way to strike a deadly blow against the Western Roman Empire. We're marching behind King Alaric and his soldiers as they sweep into and sack the city of Rome. It's one of those images from history I think that everyone's heard of, probably don't know much about the details. It's specifically, it's when Rome was sacked, which is to say invaded and messed about by Alaric the Goth and his Goths. And when you talk about, like, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire and the fall of Rome, it creates images in your head. You imagine all these people in togas running, screaming down down marble cobbled streets, while half naked men run behind them with hammers and axes and and, and whatnot. So it's a potent image. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a I I when I was when I was looking at this one, I um, I looked at images. But I don't often do. I just, but I just went onto an, an online search and started looking for pictures because I knew it had been, you know, Im- covered endlessly by, by classical artists. And there's a there's a late nineteenth uh, century uh, painting by a French artist called Joseph Noel Silvestre. It's called the Sack of Rome, um, and it's it's pretty classic and pretty typical. Uh, you've got a a column, a white marble column with a with a suitably patrician-looking Roman, you know, a statue of a Roman on top of it, white, clean, pure, beautiful uh, Roman. 
and he's being climbed up by a couple of half-naked barbarians. Uh, and they've got a noose around the neck of the statue, and they're obviously going to pull it down, you know. And so you'd have to be pretty culturally blind not to read what you're to read the language of paintings. You know, if, if you don't, if you don't, we don't study people like well, you did, Paul, but I didn't. I don't know anything about art, but I know there's a language that the classics, the classical artists, were communicating, telling stories with a language and their symbolism and the way that they framed things and structured things and the elements that they included. But in this instance, you look at it and you think, yeah, the the statue on the column is civilization, and the the hairy arsed barbarians are about to pull civilization down. It's a very simple image. At the time I was looking at it, it was very pertinent because, um, well, because this is happening and has been happening. Saddam Hussein, remember the Saddam Hussein statue getting pulled down in Firdos Square in, in Iraq? It took a lot of effort and they kind of bent it on its plinth and then they got it down and the guys were hitting him, hitting on the face with their flip-flops, you know, a, a, you know, a mark of how much they disrespected Saddam but much closer to home and more recently obviously there was that pulling down of the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol you remember the guy who was well he was either a, a grotesque slaver or a, or a wonderful philanthropist but in any event a mob of people pulled that statue off its plinth and they dragged it it was, it was medieval really they, they, they dragged it to the sea and threw it into the harbour in Bristol it was quite bizarre anyway Alaric Alaric the Goth uh, and sacking, sack means you know, to take and so they, they took Rome and it's without a doubt a moment uh, in the story of the world no, just no getting away from that it's By such the... a big headline isn't it I mean <laughs> yeah, it, it, absolutely it's a great title as well isn't it the sack of Rome yeah by that time by the time Alaric and his, and his lads got in amongst them Rome was more than a thousand years old which you say it quick but let it sink in a thousand years old. On the one hand, there was Romanitas, you know, the the peace of Rome, the kind of Pax Romana, that Romanness was everywhere in the old world by that point. But at the same time, it, it was always evolving and changing and adapting. and it, it remained Rome, but it was always slightly different from, from one day to the next. By the time Alaric got in with these Goths, it was 800 years since the last sacking of Rome. Rome was sacked by Brennus and his Gauls. Uh, Gaul is well, it's France, before France. It's the same territory. Uh, they got in uh, into the city in 390 BC, so a long time before. And Rome was a Rome was a republic. Obviously, by the time Alaric got in, Rome was an empire. It was the Roman Empire under an emperor. <clears throat> when Brennus got in among them, it was the Republic of Rome. And those republicans, uh, God bless them, uh, you know, complained to Brennus that they were being badly mistreated by the Gauls, to which Brennus is supposed to have replied, woe to the vanquished, which is old barbarian speak for get it up you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course, this has all been recorded after the fact, and it's, you know, who knows who, knows who said what and what language, but the truth, the fact of the matter is Alaric, by the time of Alaric... How come the Gauls didn't take over the whole of the... Rome at that point. They, they, they weren't they weren't organised enough. They they drifted away and ultimately they got they got beaten. You know, it was like they won a, it was like a it was a high point. It was a moment. They they got their way. They got in. It's like Bannockburn for the Scots. 
you know, it was the it was a, a shining moment. But subsequently, the Romans pulled themselves back together and dealt with the threat, and reclaimed Rome. And Rome, this is what I mean. You know, Rome had when you last for a thousand years, you've seen it all and done it all, and you've had a lot of it done to you. You don't exist for a millennium without seeing a bit. So, by the time of 410, Brennus, let's call him a barbarian. Let's just, he wasn't Romanised, let's say. But Alaric was no barbarian. By his time, there had been, as I mentioned, eight centuries of Romanitas, being Roman. Rome's the way, uh, you know, be Roman. Uh, he was born in what is Romania. No prizes for guessing where the, where the name comes from. Territory north of the Danube. For a long time, at different times, it served as a boundary, a natural boundary of the Roman Empire. But from time to time, Rome was beyond it. Rome went further out, so they did. But And by the time Alaric was born, in four, well, in the century before, in the 300s, the Romans had already withdrawn, they'd already pulled back behind the Danube. But The Danube River, yeah. The Danube River, yes. But the, the, the territory uh, remained, in Roman ways were good, there was no getting away from it. Whether you liked the Romans or not, whether you were put under the, the, their heel, they could organise stuff. They could build, they could build roads, they could they could impose rule, order, peace. You know, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So long after the, the Romans had withdrawn from that territory, people kept on being Roman in all but name. Because it was be- it was civilization. It was better than you know, it's better than crawling about in the dirt, eating worms. It's, it's better. So Alaric, to underline the fact that he's no hairy arse barbarian as you might like to think of him, he spoke Latin as well as his native tongue, and he was baptized Christian because Roman, the Roman Empire was Christian at that point. He actually followed the teachings of the Arian heresy that we've discussed before. The followers of the Arian thinking regarded Jesus as having come from God and therefore he, 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 he wasn't there at the beginning. You know, God was there and then at some point he made the sun. Uh, unlike the Nicene Creed, which was the official creed of the official Roman version of Christianity, which said that the sun and God and the Holy Spirit had always been there all the time forever. But nonetheless, he's Christian. He's following the same, 90% of the same Christian DNA. Um, and he had good grounds for wanting to be counted in, into the big brotherhood of Romanness. For example, he had in 394 AD led an army of Goths at the Battle of Frigidus. Theodosius, who we encountered last week, he of the massacre at Thessalonica, who was made to kneel before Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, in that statement that underlined offices obtained from God outranked offices of the earth. Yes, and it began that great push and pull between who's boss here, somebody who's got his business card from God or, or somebody who's written his own business card here on earth. So Theodosius uh, had, had brought in, had employed, had commissioned this goth army led by Alaric at the Battle of Frigidus because he, had, he was putting down another usurper. They were always being bothered by other characters that would stand up and say, no, I am the, the Roman, I am the rightful emperor. And so Theodosius called on Alaric. Alaric brought his Goths, and 10,000 Goths died at Frigidus. But they turned the battle. The the headline is, the Romans won the Battle of Frigidus. 
on account of that, on account of so much blood spilled by his brothers, Alaric wanted a, a seat at the big table. You know, what more do you want me to do before you treat me with the respect that I and my people deserve? He never felt that he was shown gratitude, and he, he probably wasn't. He certainly felt patronised. From time to time he was patted on the head. Yes, yes, Alaric, you're a very good boy. But he, he lost his patience with them because he was proud and he had and he had the clout so to do. And he turned on Rome uh, and, and started waging war against Rome. And he besieged Rome more than once. So he, he was at the gates and got bored and left and came back and, and so on. And then finally he got in, in 410. And there's, as there often are, if you, if you look about this, like the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Turks, the, the Seljuk Turks are supposed to have got in because an insider inside the city left a gate open, you know, a traitor. And the same thing is supposed to have happened in 410. Somebody left the Porta Salaria gate open and in came the Goths. There were three days of looting. That was traditional, three days of sack. Which is basically a leader holds his besieging army in place, persuades them to stay on the promise that if and when they get inside, they can do what they like. They can take what they want, they can eat what they want, they can do what they like to the men, women and children. <clears throat> All bets are off for three days. It's traditional. The roads and the alleyways and the rivers of cities tend to run red with blood during the, the three days of sack. Um, and so they did. Apparently, apparently, it, a lot of blood was spilled, but by the standards of the day, it was there was some restraint shown. Uh, because Alaric was, a, was Christian, he ordered that holy places, Christian places, be respected, uh, specifically where people had got inside churches and other places of worship and claimed sanctuary they were to be left untouched. And, I, well, that seems to have been respected up to a point. Nonetheless... Rome has fallen. The great city, the eternal city has fallen. And it, it sent shockwaves, shockwaves through Christendom. How could this be? It was the unthinkable. You know, it's a 9-11 moment, only worse. You know, it's like the whole of Manhattan Island has now sunk. It's that kind of scale of horror. And it, it never went away. It never has gone away. Gibbon wrote his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire in the, what is it, the, the final quarter of the 18th century. I can't remember exactly when. Uh, and even by then, all those centuries later, he was able to write that this awful catastrophe of Rome filled the astonished empire with grief and terror. It was still the impact, the aftershocks of Alaric's sacking of Rome was still there in the 18th century. To some extent, it's still here now because it haunts the imagination of the civilised or those who, who consider themselves to be civilised. It happened to the Romans. It's happened to every empire. Sooner or later, it'll happen to us. It's like being reminded of, you know, cancers out there. You're fitting well just now, but who knows? So eventually, uh, having, having done what they had come to do, Alaric and his horde of Goths left. I mean, they'd done it. Um, and they were they weren't you know they were they were more they were mobile they had they had places to be things to do and so they they actually boarded boats bound for uh, Africa they were going to go and conquer Africa <laughs> you know the, their tails were up we've taken Rome uh, the world is ours so they all got aboard boats but the weather pushed them back uh, they had to they had to abandon Africa and they returned to the mainland Alaric died at uh, Cosenza in Italy the following year. Uh, there's a great story about when he died, 
uh, his body was carried to an unnamed river. Well, you know, uh, well, which is to say, uh, we don't know what river he was taken to. And slaves by the hundred were employed diverting the course of the river. You know, they pushed it out and round so that the riverbed was dry. And then they dug a, a chamber, a, a, you know, a grave, a big grave in the, in the bed of the river. And they put Alaric in there with all his gold and whatever, his weaponry. And they covered it over. And then the dam was, was unleashed and the, the river took up its original course. So now Alaric's grave is, is, is underwater, you know, out of reach. And the slaves that had done the work were put to the sword so that they couldn't go and tell anybody where the grave was. So that's, that's the legend. Who knows? Maybe out there under, in the bed of some river uh, in Italy, there's the grave of Alaric the Goth with all his stuff. Who knows? The point, though, to get... I mean, this is a moment, the sacking of Rome by the Goths, barbarians, all that imagery. It was not actually the end of Rome. It's 410 AD, but it didn't finish it. Rome didn't become, didn't get renamed, it didn't become something else. But it was in decline, it was in terminal decline, and the, the decline would not be halted. Now, it, it, it makes us confront a, an idea that's always there. You get told that things get too big to fail. Corporations, empires, whatever. You know, we're now so big, nothing can touch us. And it's not the case. The truth of history, whether you accept it or not, is that big always fails in the end. It just does. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon or eventually, it fails. Mentioned that throughout its time in existence, Rome wasn't fixed. It metamorphosed and, and changed. And, you know, long before the 5th century and Alaric, Rome was already divided, or the Roman Empire was divided. Diocletian, he split the empire west and east. You know, the Tetrarchy, the Rule of Four, you know, an emperor in the east, an emperor in the west, each with a nominated Caesar as his successor. Also, in, in the east in particular, the, the eastern Roman Empire was operated out of Constantinople. And in the east, uh, barbarians had long been being allowed into Roman territory. You know, there was a, a notional border, boundary around the Roman Empire. But in the east especially, barbarians were coming in. They were being allowed in. And the, the thinking was fairly simple. These guys are dangerous. They've got potential. There's a lot of them. So you, you might as well have them inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent pissing. And you want them where you can see them, where you can use them, employ them, give them jobs. You know, rather than you know attacking you, you, you might as well divert their attentions and have them attack somebody else. There had been an edict passed in the 3rd century uh, granting Roman citizenship. Everyone that's in, everyone within the Roman Empire at the moment, uh, is Roman, Roman citizen. All the same rights apply. So by the 5th century, it was hard to say who was and wasn't Roman. But what, what, how are you going to define it? Born in the city of Rome? What's a Roman? And why? You know, if you, if someone is classed as Roman, why? Why so? Why are they why are they described that way? And why is someone who's not Roman not a Roman? Alaric was was of the Goths, and there were other barbarian tribes, Vandals and Huns, all of whom had been employed on large scale to fight for Rome, and they therefore understandably had claims on the place. So all sorts of people were starting to say, why not us? Why can't we be Roman? Why aren't we part of the Roman Empire? So after Alaric, after his time, by 440, another 30 years had passed, and the Huns, led by Attila, who hasn't heard of Attila the Hun, um, he was defeated at Troy in 451. 
by a nominally Roman army of Visigoths uh, led by their barbarian king Theodoric I. But Attila wasn't thwarted at that point. He was on the make and by the time uh, Theodoric died two years later in 442, Attila was plotting to make himself Roman emperor in his own right. So this is what's going on. These are, these are people who many within the Roman Empire would have considered foreigners. And yet there's Attila, a Hun, feeling entitled to claim the seat, to, to make himself emperor of Rome. So that the whole thing is very fluid at that point. The last Roman Roman emperor, if you like, in the West was Flavius Romulus Augustus. And he was a bit of a he was a bit of a high wind in the summertime. He he was a bit flimsy and he, he didn't really amount to much. And he was knocked off his perch by Odecker in 476. And what's interesting as well, you know, when you contemplate the fall of Rome, most of the of the barbarians, you know, Alaric and the like, these educated, Latin-speaking, Christianized individuals who had learned Roman ways when they got into Rome or when they got into the empire, they didn't want to destroy it. They often aspired to protect it. They had become what they had once beheld. And and it wasn't that they just wanted to come in and, you know, smash all the windows. It wasn't like that. Odecker was, was, uh, was succeeded by his brother-in-law, uh, another Goth. And he said, I hope to go down to posterity as the restorer of Rome, since it's not possible that I should be its supplanter. Now, I'm not saying he necessarily definitely said that, but the, the, whichever chronicler put those words into his mouth, if that is what happened, is making a point that the people coming in didn't want to destroy. Perhaps they wanted to maintain. I've mentioned before about Kenneth Clark, not the MP, the art critic and historian. His, his great work, I would say, was civilization, uh, And he, obviously, in, in tracking civilization, he, he considers why civilizations end, because they always do, however big. They, they, they always run out of steam. And he, he contends that, although you might have external pressure, you do, like barbarians at the gates, really, even before that, there's an exhaustion that sets in. It's a thousand years. Uh, people forget why they're Roman. They forget where they came from. They don't necessarily remember the sacrifices that were made to create the civilization. They just, they become contemptuous of it. Remember we talked about that with Hannah Arendt, who covered Nazi war criminal trials and, and, and considered the banality of evil. And, and she suggested that, you know, that people become exhausted and contemptuous of what they've always had and they, and they, and they become vulnerable to, to those suggesting something else. Uh, Kenneth Clark said that civilizations fail because of fear of war, fear of invasion, fear of plague and famine that make it simply not worthwhile constructing things or planting next year's crops. Now, I invite you to consider how relevant that is right this moment. Fear of invasion. You know, on the south coast of Britain, on the south coast of England, that word has been used by the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. The invasion by the economic migrants who are arriving by the boatload every day. Fear of war. Obviously, we've got whatever Putin and uh, Zelensky are, are up to in, in Ukraine. Fear of plague. 
disease, COVID, monkeypox, the flu, fear of famine. We've got food insecurity. They're at COP27 contemplating telling farmers to stop farming. They're talking about doing away with 50% of farming around the world. You know, so there you go, fear of war, fear of invasion, fear of plague and famine that make it simply not worthwhile constructing things or planting next year's crops. I can sense that out there in the, in the general population. There's a lot of dropped shoulders and people going, what's the point? And Clark said that because of that endemic fear and exhaustion and loss of confidence, it's that that enables our outsiders to cause chaos just by their very presence. And he, he writes, and into that chaos, this is in the case of Rome and the fall of Rome, and into that chaos came real barbarians like the Huns who were totally illiterate and destructively hostile to what they could not understand. So, where are we? History, we've said it before, Mark Twain, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it rhymes. And I just say it's hard to look at the, at the sack of Rome back to 410, back to Alaric. It's hard to look at that and not hear a warning. Not hear a warning siren and to see a red flashing light. The the Western Roman Empire, which is what we're talking about here, it burned for a thousand, burned bright as a beacon for a thousand years. And that light attracted all the time. Light attracts. A, a, a light attracts moths. Things see the light and come. What you saw happen with Rome was the people from outside, immigrants you might say, who were hungry for hope or just greedy for for their chance at grabbing a bit of whatever might be grabbed. They're drawn to the light. And then it becomes a question after a period of time of who belongs and who must be denied and expelled. It's another eternal question, but it's part of the story of why empires having risen inevitably fall after a period of time. And so that is why Alaric's sack of Rome in 410 AD is a key moment in the story of the world. So the sack of Rome was foretelling the actual fall of the whole of the Roman Empire that, that came a bit later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rome had come unstuck. It was it was like a ship that had slipped its moorings. It, it had lost its it had lost its sense of self, um, you know. And, and so many other groups had come in from the outside, all with a claim on the place. So there was a loss of identity, a loss of uh, a loss of confidence, and the, the generations alive at that time were just exhausted by it all and or contemptuous of it all. So that was 410 when Alaric came with the Goths, and, and 30 years later. Huns came, led by Attila, and they were, you know, they were barbarians of a different sort. They were much more like the kind of barbarians you think about when you hear the word barbarian. The last Roman emperor was Flavius Romulus Augustus, and he was pointless and powerless and impotent. And essentially, you might as well say that was an end of it. You know, that was the last of the Roman emperors. From a young age, he was known as honest, decent and trustworthy. Visions, recitation and submission. A force of great energy and possibilities. 
confident and insistent, a seismic event that made everything different. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. <laughs>